You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. Good afternoon. My time in Seattle is really kind of, I ran a a social issue organization in Seattle, and I don't know what you guys know about Seattle, but Seattle would be first described as a socially conservative place, and that's what I am, and and so we, I spend a lot of time working on those issues there, and learning a lot, and, and, and also part of that is understanding how people, even within our sphere, think about them. These, these categories of issues, and the first thing I want to do is actually talk about, you know, why are we categorizing them in this way? The title that they asked me to give, I, it was a, I did this for the first time last year, um, but it, why social issues matter? And, and I think in order to answer that question, we want to first think about why issues matter at all, why ideas matter, and I think that's kind of the, the foundation of why. Why do social issues matter? Why do economic issues matter? Why do sports matter or do they? Or why do, why do the thing I think about, why does what I think about anything matter? And that is, like, to me, the, the, the first question that we need to answer when we think about why social issues matter. And as Christians, what is the answer to that question? Do ideas matter? And underlying that is, is anything true? Does it matter? Does everything a matter of opinion? Is everything a matter of preference? Is the answer to this question relative? Different cultures, different times. Do ideas matter and why ideas matter? And I grew up here, 2 Corinthians 10 5, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, casting down every high thing. But the, um, we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, casting down strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Right? So it's this idea that every idea, and that's what Paul's telling us in that letter. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And the reason we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is because there is a Christian and an unchristian way of thinking about absolutely everything. Absolutely. Even the things that we think of benign, entertainment, the food we eat. Now, there is a godly way to think about absolutely everything that you do. The clothes that you put on, how you spend your time, where your money goes, the words that you use, the intonation with which you use those words, right? Everything that we do can either be submitted or not submitted to the gospel. So the social issues matter, or why social issues matter? And the answer is yes. First, because as believers, everything matters. Everything matters. Colossians 1, go read through that question. All things are created for him, by him, and through him, and in him, all things hold together. The entire universe, it's true of the metaphysical universe, and it's true of the, uh, the physical universe, and it's true of the intellectual universe, the theological, the philosophical universe. All things matter. So that's the starting point, right, of this conversation. And then why? But why do we talk, why are we even asking the question? Because it, it is a legitimate question, especially in the right of central world, right? We have this divide between economic and social issues. Why people avoid social issues? Why is there this tendency to say, well, you can do that stuff, I prefer to deal with these other issues? And I think the simple answer to that is because 
Social issues are harder. Social issues are simply harder because they implicate things that are deeper and I think ultimately more important. And I know that not everyone in this room is married, but you are in relationships. And, and I have, there's a principle I, I kind of live by at this point in my life, where, which is, the conversations I least want to have, I most need to have. That there is a there is a correlation, there is a connection between how much I don't want to talk to that person about that thing and how important it is that I talk to that person about that thing. Because the desire not to have the conversation is an implicate is an indication that it's actually very important. And I think that that dynamic, if when you get married, and all the I can see the spouses smiling at each other, and if when you get married, you will have that experience. It's like, I really don't want to deal with that. Probably a good sign that I need to deal with. Okay? And I think that's what we're dealing with here culturally with some of these issues as well. They are simply harder. And we're getting into talking about why some of those are. But there's another thing about it, because social issues are often termed as moral issues. And there's this, there's this instinct and there's this desire to believe that, well, you can't legislate morality. And when you think about social issues, it is important to define the terms. Um, and, and Maybe we'll get into that because people think about those in different ways. But when we think about social issues, some of the first things that come to mind are abortion, gay marriage, homosexuality, and gay kids, gay couples adopt children, and now racism is certainly categorized into the social issue sphere. And these all implicate morality. An idea that this is right. Abortion is wrong. Right? Some, whatever that is. I think something is right, therefore it should be this way. I think something is wrong, so it should be this way. And because we don't all agree about what is right and wrong, there's this sense that, well, if you try to take your moral conviction about that issue and put it into law, you're legislating morality, right? And we don't think it's right to legislate morality. And my very quick rebuttal to this is the fact that it is impossible not to legislate morality. Amen. This is really important for everybody to understand. Amen. And I'll provide a very trite, but I think uh, accurate example. The street that we drove in to here has a speed limit. Right? And it's probably, I don't know, we're in a state park, right? So it's probably 20 miles an hour. Something like that. It's low. That, the, the presence of that speed limit does not offend probably anyone in this room. Now, if we were starting from scratch, we might have a debate about whether it should be 15 or 25, right? But in principle, nobody's offended by the idea that there's a speed limit there. But that speed limit is a moral law. And I will try to explain to you why. It's because that speed limit, underlying the presence of that speed limit, is the belief that it is good. It is a moral good, it is an absolute moral good to preserve human life. And that because we are in a state park and there are children who are going to be walking and riding bikes and families who are going to be running about recreating, it is important that you know none of us come flying through there at 75 miles an hour, right? Because that is a, a that would endanger the lives of the people who are in the area recreating. Now there are some roads you can drive 75 miles an hour on legally. Because there's six lane highways and they're in Texas, and that's where I live, and everybody drives in 90. But the, the idea of a speed limit, certain things are good, certain things are bad. The reason we don't 
argue about presence of speed limits is because we generally agree that it is an unnecessary risk to allow people to drive through residential neighborhoods at 90 miles an hour. Because we and what we agree on the moral principles. And you can do that exercise with every law on the books, whether it's a some kind of tax credit, whether it's an environmental regulation, whether it is the length of time we send our kids to school, what time we start, what time we finish, to the fact that we can't dump poisons into streams. Every law is taking a moral position. As it should. And that's not a bad thing. And, and, and the reason I think it's important to highlight this is because we, as social conservatives, are often told not to legislate morality because what we the, the implication there is that, well, you're just trying to force your religion and make people share your religious values, which is not certainly our heart, and a lot of us retreat at that accusation, because of course I don't want to make you a Christian, because I can't make you a Christian, because that's not how the gospel works, right? And so we, we are inclined to retreat at the accusation without recognizing that the people who are telling us to stand down and go away and stop legislating morality are also trying to legislate the morality. They're just trying to legislate different morality, right? So it's really just kind of a waste of time, the conversation, and the, the, the more important conversation that we have to get into, ultimately, is whose morality is correct. That's a helpful, important, and meaningful conversation, because no matter who wins on the, on the abortion issue, no matter who wins on the, on the marriage issue, everybody is legislating morality, and that's as it should be, it's the end of the so don't get hung up on it. Just make sure that everybody's being intellectually honest about what they're doing in our debates. Because this is a really manipulative argument that is often used just don't let it be effective on you. So let's talk about the social issues versus economic issues. Because this is the, the general divide that is created in the right center world, which I'm going to assume most of the people in this room are aware of, if not actually part of. You have the economic conservatives, and then you have the social conservatives, and generally, the social conservatives are kind of cool with the economic conservatives, but increasingly, the economic conservatives like to distance themselves from the social conservatives because they're the ones that kind of get, you know, they, they're obsessing about people's sex lives. What's going on in their bedroom? And I'm kind of above that, right? I just want to make sure that the, the market is free and businesses can thrive and everybody can get Kind of cynical, but you know, an obtuse way of describing those, those categories. But let's think about it. economic issues, moral issues. Again, we establish the front. All issues matter, right? All ideas matter. Why, if we are economic, for a person who's more inclined to be on an economic conservative, I don't understand why those social issues matter. But I think this is an important conversation. Why do economic issues matter? And I put a lot of clues on the slide here. The reason we care about okay, oh we got it, all right. The reason we care about economic issues is because we care about people. It's because we believe, and everybody was everybody was there was touching on this. Is because strong economies allow for strong families, which allow for strong people, which is the whole goal of this social experiment that we're part of, right? We want people to flourish, and if everybody's in poverty. People don't flourish. So if we all have jobs that allow us to support our families and buy cars and occasionally have to go on vacation and stay warm and go to the doctor when we need to, that makes life better for everybody. 
So the foundation of all the economic stuff, the reason we argue about marginal tax rates and inheritance taxes, is because we believe that it's good if people are doing well. We believe that it's good for somebody in the family to be able to set out and try to accomplish their dreams, and one of which is to succeed in some kind of endeavor in the market because they can go home and take care of the people who matter most to them, right? And so my my belief is that the reason we even care about economic issues is because we care about families, and we care about people, and we think it's a social good for those things to be strong, and the economy is one way of doing that. So, how I'll say this is, social issues are foundational. Okay? Social issues are foundational. And I will make this case in a couple ways. What matters more for a person's success? A strong marriage or a strong 401k? We have a social problem and we have a financial and economic problem. What do we think? Might kind of be obvious, right? But we're going to ask the question because sometimes it's important to state the obvious. If we're debating between social issues and economic issues, people will be more or less successful. A, a person's success in life will have a lot more to do with their marriage than a 401k. Well, it happens to be that people who sustain marriages also happen to do better financially. But understand what the cause and what the effect is. The 401k doesn't make your marriage better. Your marriage does on balance, make 401k better. Because the things that are required to keep a marriage together, discipline, sacrifice, looking out primarily for other people, are the same character traits that ultimately lead to financial prosperity. In the same way, what's a bigger social problem? Somebody who's addicted to a screen or a substance, or somebody who's bouncing all the checks that they write? That's an economic problem, and then we have a social problem. And again, when we talk about the cause and effect, recognizing that neither of these are ideal situations, what is a bigger problem? If you fix the addiction, suddenly the bounce checks go away. You fill the bank with cash, so the checks still bounce. Eventually, give it enough time, and you're going to get back to your bounce check problem, because the problem is not the bank account, the problem is with the person. The challenge and the person to why you're dealing with that. So, first point, social issues are foundational. Secondly, social issues have big economic impacts. Now you probably know some of this already, but I'm going to go through this, okay? Just to review, addressing the poverty situation. Almost $22 trillion has been spent since President Lyndon Johnson declared his war on poverty in 1964. And yet, the poverty rate, which had dramatically decreased in the two decades prior to the war on poverty, has not budged in the 50 years since then. Been about between 12 and 15 percent since it started in 1964, consistently, despite spending $22 trillion trying to eliminate poverty. Now, we've had some dramatic fluctuations in the last 12 months, as we're all aware, right? But generally, that's where we have been. Now, nobody likes poverty. We've established that, right? How do we avoid poverty? There's three things that need to happen. You've probably heard this other places as well, but it's really important. It's worth knowing this. If you graduate high school, 
get married before you have kids, and are at least 20 years old before you have a child, if you do those three things, there is an 8% chance that you will ever be in poverty. An 8% chance. And the probability is, if you are at any point, you won't be forever. An 8% chance. However, if you fail to graduate high school, if you have a child before you get married and before you're 20, you have a 79% chance of being in poverty. And the reason I think it's important to know this is because I think the evidence suggests that poverty is not a poverty problem. Poverty is a social problem. It's a human problem. It's a culture problem. There's, there's a lot that goes into the fact that children don't graduate from high school, have kids before they're married and before they're 20. That's not a, I don't, I don't want to um, sound like that's overly simple, that challenge. And it's a spiritual problem in many ways, and it's ultimately it's the breakdown of families. But if we talk about, do we want to solve poverty? Universally, everybody says yes. Do we want a culture that promotes and exalts and lifts up the lifetime marriage? Well, I don't know. That's puritanical, right? And we're just going to kind of, we want to be a self-righteous moralist about our positions. Well, do we want to solve poverty or not? Maybe not. Maybe we prefer our autonomy more than we prefer elimination. Poverty. Now, let's talk about the benefits of marriage. And I'm going to I'm going to read through a whole bunch of these. Marriage reduces reliance on food stamps. Only 4% of homes with a married mother and father are on food stamps at any given time. But 21% of cohabiting and 28% of single mother homes require such public assistance. Home ownership. 78% of married people own their own home. While only 41% of cohabiting adults and 44% of singles do. Marriage prevents poverty better than cohabitation. The Census Bureau finds the poverty rate for children living with two unmarried, cohabiting parents is more similar to that of a single mother home than to those living with their married mother and father. So if mom and dad, even if they live in the same place but they're not married, the results there are going to be more like a single-headed household than if they were married. The piece of paper actually matters. Here's an interesting little side note in all this. Even shotgun weddings are good for keeping people out of poverty. Robert Lehrman, an economist at the Urban Institute, said that women who are married between pregnancy and birth of the first child averaged a 30% higher income to needs ratio, a 15% lower degree of financial volatility. We won't get into the definition of those. In a quote from that, shotgun marriages cut the number of years the mother and father and children spend in poverty by half compared with those who did not marry before the birth of their first child. That's the benefits, socially, of the institution of marriage, people getting and staying married. Now, there is the converse of that, right? There is a cost of divorce. It costs a couple $2,500 to divorce, which is not a good deal. But the social cost, a new single-parent family with children costs the government $20,000 to $30,000, Family fragmentation costs taxpayers a trillion dollars each decade. Trillion dollars each decade because marriages don't stay together on the, on the social circuit. There's another social issue with costs when you're very close to them. 
sexually transmitted diseases. The decisions that we make in our private life and everybody's consent, of course, because that's when it's good and harmless. 19.7 new STDs every year. Merry Christmas. 15.6 billion is the cost in the healthcare system to treat these uh, diseases. So there's there's costs. There's 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 costs in the family, there's costs that are very personal, there's costs that are very global to a whole society and families that stay together when we lose the quote unquote social issue. Now, the third part, the third point I want to make. Social issues, and this is, this hints at this hints at the fact that they are foundational. Social issues reveal a worldview. And the reason why social issues are harder is because it implicates things that are much more important. And to talk about this, I'm going to get into a little bit of an intro to worldview and make sure we kind of speak in the same language when we talk about what the worldview is. Now, question for you. Somebody seen this before? Yeah. Everybody's seen this before. Okay. <laughs> well, who wants to take a stab at who's right? <laughs> well, I know you do, because I've already got now. I'm going to give somebody else a chance. Well, we'll come, we'll, we'll come back. Anybody else? Who's right? Yes, ma'am. They're both wrong. It looks like a padlock. Okay? I, I think that's a legit answer. Anybody else? What else we got? Who's right? Both of them. They're both right. Who thinks they're both wrong? You think they're both wrong? Yeah, she does, because it's a padlock. Okay, so we have both right and both wrong. Anybody have any suggestion about how we might be able to resolve this dispute? <laughs> yeah, you do. Look at the does. Oh, look at the origin of somebody who drew it. Awesome. From Alito.
No, you're right. I did come from Texas, I now understand, but I am being a bit bigger picture in this question. Where did we come from? Maybe I'll say it that way. So we have nowhere or God, right? That's that's the possible answer to this question to shape our worldview. Meaning, does my life matter and why? What are the answers to this? What are the potential answers to this question? Does my life matter? Okay. Life has no meaning. That is that is an answer. Yes. That is the Christian answer to this question, right? Yes. God, your life matters because you were created in the image of God. I know you want to. Go ahead. Go for it. Oh, uh, I say yes because all lives matter. Okay, because all lives matter. But what is the? What are some of the other? Well, yeah, and that is the question. Why? What are what are the not even your opinion, but what are what are the answers in the world to this question? People say like your life matters as much as you kind of like help other people or find some transcendent value. Sure. That you create, really. Another way of saying that is you you give your life meaning by the things that matter to you. You determine what's meaningful to you, and if you think your life has meaning, then it has meaning. If you think your life doesn't have meaning, then it doesn't have meaning. Okay. Those are some of the, yeah, you can Absolutely, absolutely. And this implicates the life issue. Life has meaning only to the extent that it can contribute to society. And that once you, if you lack certain cognitive abilities, if there are certain things you're not capable of doing physically, then your life is less valuable, less worthy of protection, whether it's at the very beginning or at the very end. It ceases to be human in the way that we think it should be human, because humans can do X, Y, and Z. If you can't do X, Y, and Z, then you're not really human. Your life doesn't really have the meaning, uh, the, the, the value that other people's lives, so we're just going to kind of on either end do away. Morality. How do I know what is right and wrong? What are the answers to this question? Well, what are, what are the, it depends is, is an answer, right? That is an answer. And that is the question. Where do we get it? We're talking worldview assumptions. How do people in the world answer this question? How? The law determines what is right and wrong. Either what God says or what man says. God, okay. God says determines what right is wrong. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay? That, that, that is a very common answer to this question. As long as nobody, as long as, you know, your, your queen begins where my skin your freedom ends where my skin begins. That kind of thing. Yes, sir. How I feel about it. How I feel about it? Yeah. Yes, sir. What, what society says. What society? Yeah. Public opinion poll. It changes over time. What used to be awesome is now terrible. What used to be terrible is now awesome. Right? Okay. Yes, ma'am. I decide for myself. And basically, all of these alternative answers are just the different ways we decide for ourselves. Right? I decide based on the poll. I decide based on what I have for breakfast. I decide based on what I think is going to create the best outcome for me, whatever that is. Destiny. What happens when I die? It's the final set of assumptions that we have. Yes, sir. Nothing. Nothing happens. I fade to black, as the song says. We reincarnate. We reincarnate. I come back as a raccoon. <laughs> if I haven't been good, if I have been good, I come back as Bernie Sanders. <laughs> right? Because that's the goal. <laughs> anything, anything else? What are the other possible answers to this question? 
Yeah, you become a ghost, you you pass to the other side, and then you just kind of supervise it. Yeah, there's one that's kind of missing. Okay, if I'm good enough, I go to heaven. So far, I haven't even heard the biblical answer to this question. Did anybody know that? I knew I could count on the Bible. Because <laughs> in Texas, everybody knows the Bible answers. I have to figure that out. So, these set of assumptions. And again, everybody has a worldview. Whether you are conscious of your worldview or not. Whether you thought down and, and categorized it and said, this is what I believe about origin, this is what I think about what gives all that meaning, this is what I think about what gives, who determines right and wrong, and this is what I think about what happens when I die. Even if you haven't consciously answered those questions for yourselves, you are living your life, and everyone around you is living your life as if certain things are true. Now, the default position in our culture is that origin is my life is an accident, even if there is a God, he doesn't really care, but there may not actually be a God. And meaning, I get meaning from my life however I derive it from myself. There's no transcendent meaning, there's no one to be accountable to. Therefore, morality is based on whatever I want it to be based on, Basic, which generally means whatever makes me happy it determines what is right and wrong. And when I die, we don't really know. We can't prove it, so it doesn't really matter. Just do what makes you happy. That's kind of the default secular worldview that people approach life with, and that set of assumptions forms a whole lot of things. The Christian answered this question. And if we answer those four questions from a biblical perspective, you have this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, where God created everything, man broke it by sin. Jesus came to redeem the world by dealing with the sin problem and is going to restore all things in the future. That's the Christian art of history. Now, that's a biblical world. What's a woke worldview? And I just kind of described this a second ago. We all kind of evolve. The problem in the world is not sin, it's injustice. The solution is not redemption, it's a revolution, which Antifa carries out every night in Portland. And the goal is not restoration in another world where everything will be made perfect and right. It's utopia now. And the reason why they have to be so urgent and so angry and so frustrated about the things in life that are imperfect because there's no hope. There's something else that never might be better. This is the only chance they got. Now, and, and, and we already had a hint for it. So how do we answer the question? If we take this assumption about origin, meaning, morality, and destiny, how do we answer this question? What's the assumption that helps us find out the truth about this particular problem. I'm sorry? Yeah. Well, they do have, yes, but what assumption, what information? It, it is, yes, ma'am. Okay. What's the orientation? Yes. And who would know the answer to that question? The person who wrote, wrote right? Which is why your assumptions about origin are everything. Your assumption about how that thing got there is the source of the debate. If we can prove that no human has ever been to this spot, and so it wasn't created purposely by anybody, we have no idea. It could be a lock, right? Or six or nine. It's just random. But if we know somebody put it there, the way you answer the question is ask them, what was in your mind when you made it? Is it a six or a nine? 
and until you get that information, you have no way of knowing the answer to the question. So, this is true. Now let's think about how these set of assumptions inform the things that we argue about. My body, my choice. This is a slogan that, until very recently, we generally associated with abortion. I have a right to abortion because of my body, my choice. Let's make the connection to what we just talked about in the assumptions with the world meeting. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. What is the assumption underlying this claim? Be specific. What, 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 which specific assumption is at the root of this? Origin. I belong to myself. My body, my choice. I belong to myself. It is totally logical. Now, this issue, what do we what do we think? What are we talking about here? Okay, gay marriage, right? I propose to you that the argument is not fundamentally any different. My body, my choice. What are we talking about here? Right? It's the gender revolution. The argument is not fundamentally any different. My body, my choice. You don't have to answer the question because I think that's an extreme. Position assisted suicide. A different political social issue. What's the worldview claim underlying their, posi their position? My body, my choice. My body exists to please me. It no longer does that because I'm in pain or I'm just tired. I should have the right to end my life. My body, my choice. Sex work is work. Kamala Harris is a candidate for president has taken this position. Decriminalized prostitution. Why? My body, my choice. Now, I hope this reframes all of the political debates that you have with people in your school, with your friends, and with your family. Because ultimately, while we talk about these as political issues, they are not fundamentally political issues. These are clashes of worldview where one side, my side, would say, we don't belong to ourselves, our feelings are not the key to happiness, God has revealed to us how we get to human flourishing, if we obey that, if we honor him, then we will experience human flourishing. If we don't, we will deal with pain. And then there's another side that says, that's crazy. There's no God, or maybe there is, but he hasn't given us any information to know that, so we can basically ignore him. Therefore, I belong to myself. I determine what is right and wrong. The only purpose for my existence is happiness. Therefore, whatever I feel like is going to make me happy is morally correct. Both sides are acting rationally based on the assumptions they view the entire world through. Which is why the whole accusation that, oh, you're stupid, or you're stupid, you never read the right article, has nothing to do with anybody's intelligence or anybody's intentions. It has to do with the assumptions that they think, that they consciously or unconsciously carry throughout their life that allow them to process the information. If it is true that God does not exist and our existence is random, everything they believe about gender, Marriage, abortion is rational. It's totally rational if we do belong to ourselves. Because who are we or anybody else to say that? 
So, if the Bible is not true, all of these things should lead to the happiest people on earth because they are fulfilling their every desire, doing exactly as their heart tells them to do. Every time we watch a video, the movie tells my kids that you're supposed to follow your heart. We pause it, and I say, kids, where do you go when you follow your heart? And what's the answer to that? Hell no. <laughs> yes, they know the answer to that, right? So we, in my family, do not learn to follow our heart because, as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And our heart is the path to pain. Jesus is the path to flourishing. So we don't, we don't follow our heart. But we are dealing, there's enough evidence in the world that if following your heart were actually the key to happiness, we should see a lot of happy people running around, right? Thumbing their nose at God and doing whatever they want to do. They should be the most joyful people in the world. And of course, it's not exactly what we find, which you will find. And I think it's, it's important to dwell on this. The Bible is true. All of this will lead to pain. All of this will lead to pain because that's actually what we are finding. And it's not coincidental. And I would say one of the, one of the many paradoxes of, of Christianity is that the more you try to be happy, the less happy you will be. And I challenge you to find an exception to that in your life. Think about all the people you know, and of them, the people who are working hardest to be happy are the most miserable. And on the converse, the people that you know who spend the least time thinking about themselves, who spend the greatest amount of time thinking about how they can bless other people, how they can lay down their lives for other people, will be the most joyful people that you know. No exceptions to that. And that's because God did not make us to live for ourselves. And so when we honor his intention for our lives, that's how we experience the things that we rightly desire. He put in us the desire for joy and peace and, and fulfillment. Those are God-given desires. It's how we get there. That is the struggle that says, that, that's the, the war between, in Galatians 5, the, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The deeds of the flesh will take you someplace very different than the fruit of the spirit, and that's the difference between following myself and following other people. And so, the last point I'm going to make here, what happens in silence, and all of this is kind of been leading up to this. The reason social issues matter is because what happens inside of us is much more important than what happens around us. C.S. Lewis, the reason I have this picture of the ships up here, you're probably familiar with this example, but it's worth repeating even if you heard it again. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes about the ships at sea. And he says, with respect to this armada, the voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in another, one another's way. Secondly, if each ship is seaworthy and has our engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. The analogy is meant that we are an armada 
And the reason why the things that you do in your personal life affect other people is because we are sailing along in this journey of life. And we want to be in coordination with each other. But what happens inside of us determines the steering mechanism of our particular vessel. And once the steering mechanism gets broken, once we lose self-control, once we lose the ability to self-correct, much less the belief that it's ever important to self-correct, which is where we're at right now, is you will hear people argue vociferously that you can't be wrong if it's going to make you happy. So self-control isn't ever even, it's not even an ambition, because there's what would I need self-control for? Because I desire it, it is more than good. And we are watching on a nightly basis the fallout of a culture that has, that has absorbed these ideas. What happens in the biggest battles you will ever fight? It's, it's one of the worldly differences between the right and the left, and the reason why the woke worldview, through revolution, is trying to create utopia is because their assumptions about the heart of humanity are incorrect in reality. It's logical based on their assumptions, incorrect in reality. So they believe the reasons people aren't happy and the reasons people aren't flourishing is because systemic problems around us are keeping people whole, are keeping people unhappy. And as soon as you fix all that infrastructure, then suddenly each one of us will be happy. And the gospel tells us, the biggest battle you, I, or any of us will ever face is not the one going on around us. It's not with my siblings, it's not with my parents, it's not with my school, it's not with my country, it's with myself. And when every person gets their heart right, collectively, the armada begins to sync up, it begins to work through well. But if you destroy the individual steering mechanisms of every, every vessel, it doesn't matter how good your laws are. It doesn't matter how good your economic policy is. Everything is going to fall apart. But we are corresponding with the problem in this division as the church. Is, as we have neglected the maintenance of individual steering mechanisms and our children, our friends, we also have the opportunity. The gospel is absolutely related. So, quick review. Why do social issues matter? They're foundational for society. They have big economic impacts. They reveal what our worldview is. And because what happens inside us is more, matters more than what happens in us. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you liked the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.